Welcome to Bike Talk, streaming in Southern California at KPFK, Western Massachusetts at Valley Free Radio, WMBR in Cambridge, and worldwide at biketalk.org. Bike Talk amplifies the voices of people who seek to replace the car-dominant paradigm with a bicycle-friendly future. I'm with John Elliott, a singer-song cyclist, and Kara Werner, Executive Director of Napa County Bicycle Coalition, with Andrew Brooks, President of the Skyline Park Citizens Association that administers the Skyline Park. And we're going to talk about John's recent camp experience where he was turned away from a campsite that he had reserved because he didn't come in a car. Is that right? That's what happened. Yeah, last Sunday. Can you tell us about it? First of all, you're traveling with all your gear, right? Yeah, I'm a touring songwriter. I'm a solo artist. I've traveled the country and world in a Honda Civic named Glenn and then in rental cars overseas. And about 10 years ago, I moved from Los Angeles to San Francisco and I brought my car and I got tired of moving it around constantly and getting thousands of dollars in parking tickets. So when it died, I just decided to not have a car. And thus began this complete transformation to a bike-focused lifestyle. I hadn't ridden a bike since junior high school. As soon as I got my driver's license, I started driving, and the bicycle became a plaything from childhood. Hmm. And suddenly it became my most dependable form of transportation. It became the vehicle that I used. So in recent years, I've started a tour exclusively by bicycle where possible or transit. I did a tour of the East Coast in the winter last year that was mostly Amtrak. So this most recent tour is just a mini tour. I had a gig in Napa and I had a show in Glen Ellen. And I left from San Francisco. I went up to Inverness to see some friends for a birthday party and then went over the mountain to Petaluma and then to Sonoma, did the gig there. And then that morning, Sunday morning, I had reserved this campsite at Skyline because it was three miles from the gig and I was going to have my camping stuff anyway. And I thought it'd be nice. And they had a shower, which was key because you get the shower before the show. So I can show you the setup if you want sometime, but I've got the full deal. I got two paneers in front. I've got the tent in the back. I've got the guitar on one of the back spaces for the paneer, and then the other paneer is full of clothes and stuff. So fully loaded, and it was pretty hot. It was getting to be like 90s. It was about 1 o'clock. The reservation said you can check in at 1 p.m., so I was pretty close to that 1 p.m. It was like 1.15 because the gig started at 4. And I know Andrew's a cyclist. I'm sure Kara's a cyclist. You know that feeling when you're at the end of a ride. I was so stoked. The GPS was counting me down. It was like a 30-plus mile ride. It was a beautiful ride, the vineyards. And I rolled up to Skyline, and I said, I have a reservation. And they're like, great, go around the corner. So I went around the corner to the back of the little kiosk there, and I could tell something was going on. Among the employees, there was a hushed discussion happening. And then one of them, in an unkind way, a little abrasively said, you can't camp here because there is a Napa County law that you can't camp somewhere unless you've arrived by a motor vehicle. First of all, I'm tired and I'm hungry, and I'm also just like, what? Well, here's what I was thinking this morning, Nick, is, you know what's funny is that I wasn't totally surprised because of the way that our culture is so 
focused on car travel and we're such a car centric culture. And by the way, the ride into Napa is not the chillest ride. Once you get out of those vineyards, you go over that bridge, it's loud cars, there's not a protected lane, you're sitting at whatever the crosswalk is that leads to the park. I sat at that light for, I can't tell you how long, at the crosswalks, and they're letting this traffic go and this traffic go. It's not a kind environment for a cyclist. And so I wasn't totally surprised, but I certainly was taken aback. And because that employee was under the impression there was this law, I was not allowed to camp there. And this clued it into a little bit that it was maybe a little more than just a law, was after getting my bearings and trying to figure out what am I going to do, because I have a job now in less than three hours in town, I figure, okay, well, I guess I'll just get a hotel. And I go on to my phone and I don't have good service out there. But I see in the Wi-Fi, there's a guest Wi-Fi. So I ask, can I use the guest Wi-Fi to book a hotel? And the same employee says no to that. <clears throat> so it was a very unwelcome experience. And finally, I just bailed. And I went back down the road and I texted my friend. And it turned out that a friend of hers had a place in town with a guest room. And I could stay there. So it worked out. But... I put a tweet onto the Twitter about my experience and the bike Twitter algorithm was tripped and <laughs> that was flooded with all kinds of information. Some people were having similar experiences that it felt like an unwelcome place for cyclists. And then I had a wonderful email exchange with Andrew. We'll pass it to him here, but he's been very kind and understanding and 100% understands the situation. And I also then called the police of Napa. I called the county librarian and we looked at the internet together in the Napa County code in the city and this does not exist this is not a law the police officer I talked to thought it was hysterical he couldn't even figure out what that law would be but there is no law so I don't know what happened there but that's what happened so it's funny you said that the Twitter algorithm was activated that means that it started sending it out to people's feeds or what does that mean I have just found that there is a bike Twitter or whatever small bubble of the world the algorithm decides you are tweeting about. It will just show mm -hmm. it to a bunch of people. I don't have a great deal of followers on there, but anybody who talks about transit or talks about cycling or talks about bikes in any way, if there is a tweet that gets traction about bikes, it'll start showing it to people and then they'll like right. it and retweet it and it just goes crazy. Did it go viral? What do you call viral? There were over 500 likes, and I got a bunch of messages from it. Viral for bicycles, let's say that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, I've never gotten 500 likes. Yeah, it was crazy. After the gig, I opened my phone, and it was like, whoa, what's going on here? Usually it's like 10 likes. So this, I think, hit a chord with people. Well, yeah, because you're made to feel like a second-class citizen by all the infrastructure you encounter on a bicycle. Yeah. And then to have been just treated poorly... It just adds insult to that. I've been feeling that all day, you know, passed close by cars. As soon as you get off the beautiful path, you're shoved over to the side. That's just the experience of getting around in most of America on a bicycle. And then to be told you can't date a place you paid $45 for is just like, all right. Sort of like biblical or like at least New Testament type thing. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> so we happen to have here. Andrew Brooks, who's the president of the Skyline Park Citizens Association. And Andrew was surprised to hear any of this. Right, Andrew? I was. And thank you guys 
for having me on. I appreciate it. I have to mention that, and Nick and I talked about this a little bit. A friend and I years ago made some jokes about having an interaction that we jokingly called bike talk. Both of us were fans of car talk and both of us were cyclists and we never made it happen. He is now quite jealous that I'm on the show. So <laughs> anyways, thank you there. Yeah, John's interaction was familiar to me. So I'm a lifelong cyclist, and sometimes it feels like the whole world is stacked against you and sort of deeply embarrassed that a park that I helped lead was responsible in some way for this sort of planetary alignment against John's intended plans for his gig. So where to start? Some background. So Monday morning, somebody who's part of the Parks Citizens Association body that operates and administers the park sent me a screenshot of John's Twitter feed. And I did some digging and we reached out. In fact, Kara got hold of me. The park doesn't have a Twitter feed. And embarrassingly enough, I'm also not a Twitter user, but wanted to contact and get a little bit fuller story and understand what had happened and do our best to correct it. In doing a little bit further digging, I was all the more surprised to find amongst the park's camping policies and on the website that administers our online reservations that there was right there written a policy that said must have motor vehicles to tent camp, which was the first I was aware of. It was something that was very surprising to me to find this thing in the camping policies that said you must have a motor vehicle to camp. And... I can only imagine that years prior, there were some folks that were coming in not by motor vehicle that the park administration at that time was wanting to control their access. It seems ridiculous to me. And in talking with other members of the park's board, we agreed and basically decided that this immediately needed to be corrected. So we reviewed those policies. We gutted that section of the rules and regs. And after talking with John a little bit, realized that we were also not providing amenities to folks who were coming in, not by car in terms of bike and hike in campsites that are maybe a little bit more private, a little bit more affordable than $45 a night, and potentially with some amenities or features to help especially cyclists have a pleasant stay, a secure place to put your bike overnight, and some public access tools in case you need to do any repairs, that sort of thing. That's so cool, Andrew, because that's above and beyond the hike and bike sites at the state parks in California. I stayed at one of those on the way up. The one at Pantole Campground was seven bucks. There weren't tools <laughs> and there wasn't a private place to put your bike. So that's really cool that you guys are thinking about that. I think part of the advantage we have in being sort of one extra layer of administration or operating sort of semi-independently, although we're under the general auspices of the Napa County Parks and Open Space District these days, is that we have a little bit more flexibility to move a little bit more quickly. A decision like this doesn't have to go through many layers of bureaucracy. We can just act. So as mentioned, I'm a lifelong cyclist and a number of our board members also are. And so it just seemed obvious to us to help provide a little bit more for a user group that we're very much in support of as an important user group to the park. Kara, you are the Napa County Bicycle Coalition Executive Director. You just came on, when was it? January? In January, yeah. And John said that it wasn't just the park that seemed unfriendly to cyclists. And I'm wondering if you're aware of that about Napa. Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah, our infrastructure is not what it could be or should be, especially given that we live in California in a wonderful climate. And really, most of Napa is on a valley floor. So riding conditions, especially for transportation, are really great. And yet we are 
definitely behind the times in terms of improvements and new treatments and whatnot that you're seeing pop up in other places. And especially given how close we are to Davis, which is one of the bike friendliest cities in America. So yes, we're very much aware of it and getting it in and out of town is difficult as well as particularly moving east and west in the valley. There's the vine trail and there's other natural infrastructure that goes north and south, but the east-west paths are much more challenging. So yes, that route through Imola Actually, that intersection, they just did an analysis of the high injury network, and that intersection at Imola and Sostel is number one most, yeah, not most dangerous. Not surprised. That's what you took, John? Yeah, that's where I was. Yeah, that's not surprising. Yeah, and these things take years to change, but fortunately, there has been real progress on the Imola quarter in terms of they have a full, complete streets plan. If it goes in as planned, it's going to be a I think really wonderful, comfortable, safe place to be. And so they're completely through the planning phase and they have an application in, a $16 million application in for funding for the improvements. And the improvements will include a class one bike path on that segment between Soskal and the park. Right now, John, it's not a place I want to ride at all. There's not even a shoulder and cars drive quickly down that street. So that will be a class one. It's really important. There's a high school right there as well. And then there's going to be probably Napa's first protected bike path over the bridge. And oh, that's, cool. that's great. Yeah. So these things are complicated. There's the county, there's the city, there's Caltrans. Caltrans has that right of way over the bridge. So it's not a small thing to plan a project and the whole corridor goes basically the whole valley floor east to west. So it's a big project, but really hopeful that there are improvements coming there and very much needed. And I think folks at least recognize that they were really needed. It's frustrating to have to wait so long for them, but that seems like it's mostly par for the course. In fact, if anyone knows <laughs> a consistent way to speed things up, please let me know. I think I told you in the email, in my district in San Francisco, they just announced this big exciting thing and the supervisor can excitingly tweet that they're spending $300,000 on a study to figure yeah. out what to do. And every person that is a pedestrian in the district can tell you what to do. I can save you the $300,000. It's amazing to look at the difference between you dealing with these bureaucratic institutions and Andrew's a private nonprofit, and they're just like, yeah, we're going to put in a hike and bike thing. It'll be done in about two to three weeks. <laughs> you know. I know. That's fantastic. I'm jealous. Yeah, they really want plan. And that's maybe one of the greatest awakenings I've had in understanding how things work since I stepped into the position is just that Nothing gets done without a plan, and the plans are really actually aspirational, a lot of them. So the plan means there's a possibility it could happen, but it's not a plan in the way that I think most people use the word plan. If you have a plan, it's what you're going to set out to do. But the plan here is, well, we can consider it now that it's in a plan. And some of that is understandable. There's real issues around right-of-way and funding, of course. For example, this is a small win in Napa, but it's a significant win. We are going to be getting our very first buffered bike lane, and it's only going to go for a block or so, but it's in an important location right by a high school where high school students are there driving in and out and riding and all of that. So on the one hand, we're very excited that we're getting our very first buffered bike lane. On the other hand, I've been in small rural towns and seen buffered bike lanes everywhere. So that just gives you a sense of where Napa is. 
At one point in the morning, I went from Napa to the Vallejo Ferry. Most of it took me through the business districts, but there was one section of it that was clearly a brand new development. There was new condos. There was a new road. Everything was new. And there was this incredible bike lane separate from the road, not on the road, but next to it that was marked as a bike path. And it was incredible for 0.4 miles. Yeah. It was like, what had a connected network like this? Yeah. So that's the Vine Trail. That's crazy. It's yeah. way down there. Yeah. They have a lot of those segments built out. And that's part of why the north-south routes are easier is because the Vine Trail is going to stretch 47 miles and it's going to be a class one path most of the way if not all of the way. They're trying to work out how to get that through Healdsburg, the town of Healdsburg. So it might be a bike boulevard briefly there. But yeah, that's one of our greatest assets. It's also in some ways a challenge because we call it the spine of the bike network here, but a spine is not a network too. And so it gets a lot of focus and attention and funding, which is wonderful. But the rest of our roads need improved bike facilities too, so that people can shop and go to school and go to dinner. And the folks who live here can really have an option to ride. I know Napa Valley tourism is a big thing. Is the trail good for tourists to go see the vineyards? It is. There's a lot of tourists who use it. There are a lot of locals who use it. So it's really good for everyone. But it goes along a lot of wineries. And so it's a project that's been really successful in building really wide support and support of a lot of the industries that cater to tourism because it's an infrastructure project for one you can see it and touch it and there it is and because it is going to bring more money into the county as improved bike facilities tend to do and it's beautiful it's so cool it's such a bummer when you get kicked off it because you're just having (laughs) fabulous experience and then suddenly yeah so you don't mean like another park ranger came out and told you to get off. <laughs> no, in this case, the trail just answered. This one specific section I'm talking about, I'm trying to find it because I see what you're talking about, Kara. It's awesome what they're trying to do here. They're going to try yeah. to get the whole deal. Yeah, the one where it ended was funny because it was like, oh man, this is great. And then there's just a sign that says sidewalk ends and just trucks everywhere. <laughs> it's just, Suddenly it's like, oh, okay, that's over. I yeah. Guess your car is supposed to be there. Yeah, right. Well, I'm thinking if this goes to the wineries, that would be great because it would be nice for people to be able to bike away after drinking. Well, (laughs) technically people aren't really supposed to be drinking and riding. I found that in the municipal code when I was looking deep into it. You're not allowed to ride a bike drunk. Well, yeah, of course not. Of course not. But better than driving. Certainly better than operating a super heavy vehicle. The damage you're likely to do to other people is much less. And they have parking lots at wineries. Yes, they absolutely do. Napa has a lot of its challenges, but the county of Napa, like second worst in the state for overall traffic safety. And the cities also rank really low for serious injury and fatal collisions. And drinking and driving definitely is a factor in that. Well, can we go back to the changes that were made? Andrew spoke of gutting the regulations. That's just since hearing about this thing that happened to John, right? 
So in a way, even though it was a very unwelcoming experience for John, it was really good for us because it shined a light on some stuff that needed attention immediately. And so we just revised a lot of those policies to make sure that they were in line with our feelings about making the park more welcoming place and especially to folks who haven't necessarily previously been made really welcome into outdoor spaces. So that's been super exciting. And like Kara was saying, Napa has not historically been a place that's been really easy to navigate by bicycle. It's maybe a little easier if you're a local and you can wiggle your way around the back streets that get you to the same destination as a main artery and that are just by virtue of having a lot less car traffic on them are a lot safer, but it's tough. My wife grew up in Davis and she was to some extent spoiled by the situation there in terms of how bicycles are integrated into the traffic infrastructure and what the experience is as somebody moving around by bicycle as compared to in a car. Just Napa has historically been much worse. There were a number of suggestions that came up when people heard about John's story. And one of them was to, what was it, name a campsite after him? <laughs> yeah, that might be happening. Be careful. <laughs> I can't support that. <laughs> John, no, the Elliot campsite. <laughs> yeah, Elliot hiking, biking campsites, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm not really interested in that, but. No, um, very likely. And all joking aside, we've switched to a numerical convention for most of the park's campsites. So very likely they'll get a number. Yeah, just that alone, the fact that this experience has turned into that creation is just wonderful. I couldn't have imagined when I was biking away from there that this would be a week later where we were. I was just, well, I guess Napa has this terrible law. It just speaks to how much work there is to do. This is an optimistic conversation because listening to the way Kara thinks about the bicycle, not as a recreation vehicle, Actually, as a piece of transportation, you can't just get north-south. you got to get east-west. I'm going to go get groceries as soon as you get off this call, and I'm going to do it on the bike. And this is just how I get around. <laughs> but we've inherited a 100 years of infrastructure that has been built around this invention that happened in the beginning of the 20th century, which is the motor vehicle. And it's just going to be a heavy lift. we got our work cut out for us. Yeah. And I read yesterday that I think it was the city of Carlsbad declared a state of emergency because there have been so many collisions and e-bike collisions. And I think that with some areas really taking to e-bikes, hopefully that will force some changes quickly, because if not, then you will end up with those collisions. And I want to look more into it, but the article I read said that by declaring a state of emergency, they could bypass a lot of steps. And I thought, well, that's wonderful. I want to learn a lot more about that. Yeah, well, do you know the anecdote about the super blocks in Barcelona? I don't. Paris is an example, too. Ever since the pandemic, Paris is... Oh, yeah. But in Barcelona, they had this idea to do these super blocks where they would block out sections of the city and just put permanent concrete barriers and you couldn't go in those like nine square blocks. So they made these little pedestrian areas and they just did it overnight. They just put yeah. up the things and people woke up and they were furious. But then their kids were outside playing and then they started to talk to their neighbors. And within a month, the whole community was behind it. Yeah. yeah. And there are lots of good examples of that. I think the pandemic brought that on too. 
you certainly have to have the political will for that. And we're not finding that sort of will here in Napa. And I know there was an effort to close streets during the pandemic and it didn't pass. And we have just this one block of Main Street that was closed. And it's exciting because it might stay permanently closed. At least city council would like to see it stay that way because I think the emergency declaration is going to expire. But it's one block. So we'd love to see more spaces transformed in that way. There's been a planned pedestrian mall on one of the streets downtown for, I don't know, I want to say for a decade or something, but it hasn't come to fruition. So it's very exciting to see these kind of projects and also quick build projects. That's the idea behind these quick build projects where you throw up bollards and low cost solutions and let people kind of try it out. They can be really successful. And we may see some of those in Healdsburg here coming up, one of the cities up Valley, but Yeah, it's been hard to get the support for those quick change projects here. Yeah, if there's not the political support, then you're in a minority and it doesn't happen. If I can jump in, those sorts of changes can start to happen in really small ways. If I use Skyline Park as a microcosm sort of example, the administration that probably put the must-have-a-motor-vehicle-to-tent-camp regulation in place was, oh, probably as recently as 10 years ago. And the folks that are on the board now oh, I would say an easy half of them are cyclists and not only folks who ride mountain bikes for pleasure, but people who get around town by bicycle. So people who are doing their grocery shopping or going to and from work or going into town to have dinner or whatnot. And it doesn't seem to me from where I sit to be a far stretch that people like that may eventually be in enough positions of authority in municipal government to make these sorts of things a reality. It feels super far away until it's not. I love that. Kara, you said that the electric bike is an invention that is going to transform this because it opens up that form of transportation for so many people. We're going to have to design infrastructure around that vehicle. We're just going to have to. We're not going to have an option, I don't think. Yeah, I agree. And another good trend is the declaration of climate emergencies and municipalities that will, I think, lead to more support and funding for better bike infrastructure, but it is frustratingly slow. And Napa, I think, generally speaking, is behind the times with some of the treatments that are available that we're seeing in other places. Back to that study comment, a lot of our highest injury areas are study corridors. And right now, looking at the next general plan, even those study projects are sort of midterm. And you think a plan is generally around 20 years So a lot of us feel like the time is now, but by the time we get through funding the study, doing the study, it does take a frustratingly long time. So we're kind of always looking for how do we keep this front and center? How do we keep pressure on to see those studies happen? Three words, Cara. State of emergency. Yeah, right. Exactly. (laughs) That's why the Carlsbad article, I was like, oh, What about us? We have pretty abysmal traffic safety stats, so perhaps that's a route to explore. Carlsbad does not surprise me. I was there a year ago. The main street that goes through Carlsbad is one of those two lanes in both directions with another turning lane in the middle, so five lanes of cars. That was very not pedestrian-friendly. I haven't been, so I haven't seen, but there's been a real uptick with e-bikes there. Well, this was a productive conversation, the whole thing, from the tweets to the emails. Yeah, and I really appreciate that John did speak up because a lot of times what we find is there are people who care. 
like Andrew said, the people who are involved in Skyline are absolutely bike friendly. So sometimes it's just about capacity and talking to people and things do change. The larger infrastructure projects go slower, but there are other pieces that can go faster. And one other example of that here that was positive is one of the biggest complaints we get is about trash bins in the bike lanes. And so I reached out to the recycling folks and they were amazingly supportive and they worked with us on an educational insert that went out in all of the bills in August. And they're going to do some knock and talks with some of the areas where it's worse. We suggested stickers in the areas where it's worse and they've developed those too. And those are going to go out. So just like Skyline, there are little pockets where things can change and move faster. And it's really wonderful when they do because a lot of folks in those agencies are cyclists themselves and really happy to do what they can. Man, that's a huge thing. The trash bins in the way, I'm constantly encountering that. Yeah, this pushes you right out into motor vehicle traffic. Yeah, I just want to say thank you to Andrew, too, for being so positive and turning what was a pretty negative interaction into something positive. I think it just speaks to the power of communication and understanding. I think it's great the way that they've responded. John, likewise, and thank you for bringing this to the forefront, but doing it in a positive way and letting us come to a collaborative, positive outcome. It takes both parties to want to make it better, so I appreciate the part you did. Well, this was positive, so thanks, everyone. Hi, I'm Carmen Aiken. I use they, them, and she, her pronouns. I currently live in Chicago, Illinois, where I am sort of from, but I've been popping all over the country for the past few years, and I work for the Adventure Cycling Association. I am the Bike Overnights Program Project Manager, and what Bike Overnights is, is sort of the idea that you should just start where you are, and bike travel is really for everyone, and the mission of the Adventure Cycling Association is to inspire, empower, and connect people to bike travel, And we would like to um, make sure that we're doing that for everyone. You know, historically, the outdoors industry and the bike industry has been um, not super welcoming and inclusive, especially of people who are um, BIPOC, LGBTQIA, um, women, transgender, intersex, and gender non-conforming people, people with disabilities. And Adventure Cycling is trying to own that and make sure that we are being supportive of everyone in the community. So it's pretty great. We encourage people to take bike overnights trips, which is less than three nights nights or less and less than 60 miles a day. And we also just recently published some of our newer short routes. And what's exciting about this is adventure cycling is really known for its routes and maps. They're awesome. We did the Trans Am. We have the Great Divide mountain bike route. But these short routes are actually developed in conjunction with community leaders in um, 12 cities across the country. So you can look them up. They're available for free. Ride with GPS on our website. Um, They have a bunch of really amazing suggestions from these community members. uh, And they're a great way to just try out a really short bike trip. So it's really exciting. Wow, this still makes me want to quit my job and go on a bike ride right now. (laughs) Yeah, right? It'd be nice. Me too. And this is my job. My job is biking too. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So how did you get involved? Yeah, well, like very long story short, uh, as short as I can make it, you know, I've, I've known about adventure cycling for quite a long time. When I got into bike touring, um, I was looking at some of the maps of some of the routes that have been made. Um, Peaks, Parks and Prairies is one here in the Midwest. And, um, I got, was able to get a membership. And what I actually really enjoy about adventure cycling is the magazine. We have a, um, 
a magazine called Adventure Cyclist. And it is just wonderful. Our editor, Caroline, uh, the staff, Dan and Allie, they do an amazing job. And sort of all these stories got me really excited. And basically a couple of years ago, I um, had been working in the private sector of the bike industry in Minneapolis for a while, transitioned out of that. And someone sent me this job posting and it's basically really up my alley. I uh, really firmly, firmly believe in inclusion and access to outside, like love REI, but outside is not even remotely free. <laughs> and I think everybody should be allowed to go outside. And so when I saw this, I was like, oh, wow, this is awesome. But a million people are going to apply for this job. I'm never going to get this job. But then I did. And that was really exciting. And it's really cool. The office is in Missoula, but I um, get to work remote. And so I've been able to go to different places around the country to support events we do when we've provided um, mini grants to groups who put on an overnight event for folks from marginalized communities. So it's been amazing. But yeah, um, I guess a little more about me and bikes. You know, I, I finished undergrad at the height of the recession. I moved back to Chicago, had a bike, just started riding it because I didn't really have anything else to do, didn't have a job. Then I started commuting. And then um, I know Ruth, you said, you know, you'd been involved in bikes in Chicago. As you know, it's like a really robust scene and uh-huh. You know, did critical mass and volunteer for bike the drive and all this stuff and it just kind of all snowballed and I realized that like being on a bike has been a really incredible way for me to engage with different communities with my communities to see the world at a very like you know a slower pace and and just realize like hey you know we have neighbors everywhere and we should all be taking care of each other and I want everyone to be able to access that if they'd like so that's my big, big speech about why I care about bikes. <laughs> do you remember the first overnight bike trip that you took? Uh, yeah, I do. It was actually kind of terrible. So it, was, it wasn't my first bike tour. It was, um, I, you know, was seeing a person, do whatever. <laughs> anyway, and um, in Chicago, uh, we are on the Great Lake Michigan. And if you ride up um, Lake the lakefront trail and then you kind of keep going north you can get all the way to basically the border of wisconsin and i you know i had this person and some friends and was like oh man we could just like go up there and camp at the beach and i said to myself what are you talking about that's craziness like one i, I didn't really camp and two like what do you mean but of course you can just ride your bike there so i literally <laughs> i threw i borrowed a sleeping bag from someone i threw it in my chrome bag and i just rode all the way up there and to this day, I still every once in a while do something like that, just like throw my sleeping bag in a backpack and like attach my tent with a grocery uh, net to my handlebars just to be like, I can still do this. Um, it was fine. It was a good trip. Um, but I, you know, uh, I, I sort of evolved and I've done all kinds of trips. I my first bike tour, I rode from Chicago to a farm that I worked on, the pizza farm in uh, Stockholm, Wisconsin. It's beautiful. And um yeah, I've ridden a little bit in the Badlands. I've ridden down the Pacific Coast. I've ridden on uh, the Blue Ridge Parkway. Um, but yeah, right now, actually, I, I really love bike overnights. I really like just being able to sort of jump out, you know, like I know what I need, you know, and I know how far I want to go. I, I don't need to go that far if I don't want to. Um, in Chicago, we're really lucky to have great regional rail. So like, the last one I did, I jumped on a train and got off and then did 30 miles on a rail trail to the Kankakee River State Park. And it was great. Mm, nice. Yeah. Okay. Uh, can you talk any more about like specific things that Bike Overnights does to make biking more accessible to people? 
Yeah. So how Bike Overnight started is um, uh, in, you know, it was the pandemic. I can't believe I just blinked on that word. And normally, um, normally we do an event every year called Bike Travel Week and a Bike Your Park Day. Obviously it's pandemic. So, you know, we didn't really know what we were doing, but at the time we were also really trying to be inclusive. So at that point was this, we started this model of you could, we would give ride leader stipends to people from marginalized backgrounds. So um, uh-huh. people of color, women, queer people, um, and they could go lead a ride and it worked really well. And it, it was great. And we met a lot of great community partners. And by the time I came on board, we really wanted to continue that. We sort of grew our funding. And and by this point, um, it'll be the end of our fiscal year. I actually was just crunching my numbers. You know, we've basically sort of impacted almost 2,500 people who are mostly from marginalized backgrounds and encouraging them to go on bike trips. Mm-hmm. We've um, done like 12 smaller trips with people and that that's about 150 people. But basically we, people come to me or I, I reach out to them and we try to make sure that they have funding to do the thing that they need because, you know, the reality is, is you, you can definitely make do on a bike, but it's funny because it's almost easier to do that. It's easier to feel really low key on a bike camping trip when you've done it a few times. And those first few times is really when you need support, when you need like, oh, I don't know, like, I don't know what bag you take, or like, I don't know how to pitch a tent. And um, so some of the people we've worked with in this past year, which have been awesome is Bikes Not Bombs, which is in Boston. They actually just went on their bike overnight last week. I'm so excited to hear about it. They designed their own route, which is like sites of resistance all around Boston. And they took their youth and I'm so excited to hear about it. And then I got to go on an event in Austin, Texas with our partners at the Jasalo Initiative. Um, and they do a lot of like bike commuting classes, how to ride a bike. They do bike clubs with elementary schools. And so we took um, like 11 fourth and fifth graders who were all Latino and black on an overnight and then we rode back for bike to school day it was like probably the best thing that happened to me this entire year it was just so fun and so ridiculous and like so hot um but nobody died we went swimming um they were all terrified of this like latino urban legend called la llorona and i kept having to be like guys la llorona isn't gonna come get you it's fine like okay um but they all did it you know which is pretty amazing it's amazing to like be able to go like 10 miles and go camping and i don't know it was wonderful um we also work with um friends on bikes which is in seattle and portland and it's um made for uh like women transgender intersex gender non-conforming um people of color and they do incredible work. Shout out to Roxy Robles and Molly Sugar and Jess Kim and, and all the folks who are doing that. We've done a lot of rides with them and, and it's just been great. Um, yeah, we, you know, there's there's so many people who are interested in this and, you know, me getting to meet them and, and find out who they are and, and see what they want to do. And, and also, you know, I think it's it's really important to recognize that like, yes, adventure cycling has been around for almost 50 years. But other people have expertise. And if we all bring that shared knowledge together, you know, what works for me might not work for you. What works for, you know, a 65-year-old white guy on a, like, $3,000 touring bike? Like, good. That's awesome. You do you. That is maybe not going to be the the beginner, right? That's maybe not going to be the commuter. And so, like, how can we share that knowledge? How can we empower those people? Um, Yeah, that was a tangent. But it's been great. And I am really excited. We have Biker Park Day coming up on September 24th. And we are hoping to get a few more events off the ground by then, just squeeze it into the end of the year. But it's so cool to 
just meet people who are so excited, who are excited about the things you're doing. And especially, especially youth, like youth are really near and dear to my heart and, and being able to like ride into a campground with a bunch of kids and then like set up the tents and do the s'mores and you know it, it was just it was a blast <laughs> yeah would recommend by the way if you like you're like oh I'm a little burnt out I don't know what's going on just just put some kids on bikes ride mm-hmm. them all together make sure they're drinking water make sure that they know the armadillos aren't gonna attack them through the tent you know like make sure <laughs> that everybody eats in the morning for breakfast. And then also that we all remind them that like we were going to get breakfast tacos. So like, if we all make it back to school, we will all have breakfast tacos guys. I need you to make Mm -hmm. it back to school. So yeah, it was awesome. One of the first bike overnights trips that I got to like support as a staff member was out in the San Juan islands um, in, in Seattle. And we did it with Marley Blonsky, who's the uh, founder of All Bodies on Bikes. And she's just like a wonderful advocate. And she organized this ride and it, it ended up being all women trans, uh, gender nonconforming intersex folks. And we opened it up and, and I was going to be driving the SAG vehicle because I had a car. And I had multiple people there who were like, I wouldn't have done this if I didn't know there was, if like there hadn't been a car. One, because like, I don't have all my bags yet. Like I have a bike, but I don't have a way to put them on there. And so the fact that like I have this giant puffy sleeping bag and you can put it in your car. And then when I told Marley I was going to have the car, she was like, oh, so like you could bring stuff, you know, for dogs. And I said, yeah, why not? Like, sure. So we brought her two dogs, her two senior, uh, beautiful, cute dogs. So they're in a trailer and everyone's riding. And then someone else was like, well, if you're going to have the sad car, I can bring my kiddo because I can bring all the food for my kiddo and I can make sure that like I have her seat on the back. And so basically we ended up being this group of like 10 uh, adult trans gender non-conforming intersex women, a child and two dogs. Um, Yeah. And it was, I mean, it was great. You know, like I I think we all have a dream of being self-supported. Don't get me wrong. I, I like that too. But especially in the beginning with a group, like if you even just have that like knowledge that you would be okay if something mm-hmm. happened to you. And, and that's really important to me too, in terms of like multimodal transportation as well. Like I would really like more bike touring or bike packing routes to be like in conjunction or have things like, and this is where an Amtrak station is, or this is where yeah. a, all of those things are. Um, especially because like when I did my Pacific coast highway tour, I had gotten injured like two weeks prior. I had sprained my wrist. So I was really struggling. And once I sort of just gave in to like, Hey, Northern California and Oregon coast have these really awesome regional bus like Mm -hmm. things, you can put your bike on them. And, and whenever I was like, you know what, I don't know if I can do this or whatever. It was just really nice to have that option. And so I think, I think a little less emphasis on the sort of self-styled, like I did it on my own and I have all my stuff Mm -hmm. and a little more emphasis on like, you know, you can do it like this too. And it's an equally good adventure. It's really I think important for those of us who have the privilege, people who are comfortable in their bike adventure, like we should be trying to help the people who aren't yet, whether that's like loaning our gear to them, or do I have the car with a bike rack, or can I go to the, with the kids from the Gisalo initiative, we had these two amazing volunteers who showed up ahead of time and like had all the food ready, which is great because like, I don't know about you, but I've been to that campsite on my bike trip and I get there and I'm so tired and cranky and hungry. And I'm like, I don't even want to do any of this. It's fun to go in a group and I think it can give you a lot of 
courage if you want to do it on your own. I I have to admit that I really love doing bike trips on my own, but yeah, there's just something different about it. Yeah, so we're hoping to do more of that. Stay tuned if you are paying attention to adventure cycling. We want to have more opportunities for people to gather together. But I think the other really great thing is there are so many groups in your own backyard, right, who are trying to do things like this. And just making sure people know about them, have access to them. You know, in Chicago, we have Out Our Front Door. They do these wonderful shorter trips around the region. Um, but there's so many affinity groups, whether it's like Friends on Bikes in the Pacific Northwest or the Radical Adventure Riders and all of their chapters. We we just did a, an event in New Haven where we sort of taught 40 to 50 people about like bike adventuring and riding off-road. And just knowing that those groups are out there, I think is, is really important. And having spaces where you don't, you don't feel like you're being bike explained to. No one is sitting there being like, well, if you don't have a hydration pack, I don't know what you're going to do. Or like, if you <laughs> don't have a I don't even know, like a tiny top tube bag or whatever. Like none of those things matter. They matter if you want them to matter. You don't need to do that if you want to go 30 miles out to Carver Park in Minneapolis, which is, by the way, one of the best bike camping spots in the whole country. Uh-huh. Yeah. Cool. Can you talk any more about ways that people who are gender non-conforming, like barriers that they might face that, that you wish that more people in the cycling community who aren't gender non-conforming or aware of? Yeah, I mean, as someone who I do, you know, I identify as gender non-conforming and I can't speak for everyone. Um, but part of it is, I think, it speaks to a larger issue of if we're going to be going on trips, if we're going to be organizing events and rides, when we do these things, like how are we setting the tone right off the bat, right? Like, are we explaining really clearly what is going to happen? Like, especially for folks who like aren't going to feel safe necessarily going to a restroom. So explaining like, we're going to be stopping in these places and this is what it will be like. And and these are the people who are going to go. And, and before you go on that trip, before you go on that ride, before you make that event, I've been really impressed um, by this group, Rao New Haven, who we worked with because they were so explicit about all of it. And I think the other thing is like, ask questions. Don't, don't ask invasive questions. There's no need to do that. But literally just saying, hey, what do you need? Hey, if you're going to go on this trip with me, hey, if you're going to go to this event, what do you need? What would make you feel the most comfortable? Like you're doing the basic things. Like if you have your pre-trip meeting, use, use, just, just use pronouns. It's like not, it takes five seconds. (laughs) And I think some of it is just, yeah, like communicating that, communicating like this is what's going to happen when we get to camp. We're going to do like a land acknowledgement. We're all going to research like whose who's land are we writing on? Whose land are we creating on? Okay. And then we're going to divide up eating. How, how does everyone feel about eating this? Like who wants to do that? Okay. Then we're going to have quiet time. I think being a great leader is of these events. Like that's sort of what I'm learning more and more of. A lot of this is really just like setting intentions and also making a space of safety and, and saying like, Hey, if you're not feeling comfortable, like please feel free to talk to me, stopping on a route, making sure everybody's together. But I don't know, a lot of it, it seems to me lately is is coming down to communication. I think people are really well-intentioned and that's great. And sometimes you just need to ask people what they need and what they want. And I think it's equally important, like you have to be elevating and sharing the experiences that we aren't getting and that we haven't gotten in bikes and outdoors. I think it's happening more and more. I think it's great. I also want to shout out John Watson at the Radivist for always publishing people I send him. 
the more experiences that we have from people who are gender non-conforming, from people who are people of color, the more we're reading those. And like, look, I have a lot of really nice white guy friends and sometimes I just want to read something else. You know, we just want a diversity. We want a plethora of voices. And because those people aren't maybe doing it the same way that we've always heard. And like, I love adventure cyclists and I love really epic stories. And if I thought, if, if those had been the only ways I had ever heard about going on a trip, if all I did was look at Instagram pictures or, or very expensive bikes, I would think to myself, like, I can't do this. But I was really lucky at the time I started wanting to go on bike trips to have a friend who basically told me like, no, you don't have to do that. This is, you can do it like this here. Why don't you borrow this from me here? This is how you can buy cheap stuff on the internet. And that was really great. And, and, and just making more of those spaces where we're like reminding ourselves, not everybody's at the level I am. Not everyone has my lived experience and just saying, Hey, what do you need? What are you curious about? How can I help you? Um, and then when you're done with that being like, and now I'm going to share your story. Do you want your story shared? Sure. Story shared. Sometimes it really is very simple with yeah. that, or at least it yeah. has to be. You can go to bikeovernights.org. It's a little bit in construction right now. Um, and you can also, we our short routes are up on adventurecycling.org. You can go to the website and explore, um, and the short routes are up there. We will be publishing some info about them too. Follow us on Instagram. Um, if you have questions about the program, if you have partners you think we'd be great to work with, you can email bike-overnights at adventurecycling.org. I'm always always looking to meet and hear from more people. So I really appreciate, thank you so much for talking to me and giving me the chance to talk about this. That was Bike Talk. Check us out at biketalk.org and get in touch. Support us if you like our work. We post every week, so check back next Tuesday. Have a good week. Push on a pedal, push on a pedal, get your heart started. Push on a pedal, push it down and up again. Push on a pedal, push on a pedal, get your heart started. Push on a pedal, push it down and up again. Get on your bike, sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedals, and ride it all around, ride it all around. Get on your bike, sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedals, and ride it all around, ride it all around.
yourself a bite. Oh, catch yourself a bite. Oh, catch yourself a bite.